0: You'll be ready to read with us in just a minute. So, I'm just curious, how do you feel about your name? When I think about my name, sometimes I wonder if my mother misnamed me. No kidding, I have been called Steve almost more times than I've been called Scott. And for those of you that are new, my name is Scott. So help me out with that when you leave today and uh, get that right. But uh, no kidding, you know how uh, people that want to model for you or coach you about how to make a good first impression and how to engage people when you first meet, you'll want to get their name and you'll want to give it right back to them. And so I'll introduce myself as Scott and they'll go, Steve, it's so good to meet you. And they'll just shoot it right back to me just like that. I'm like, what is that? So that has been uh, almost all my life that uh, I've been called Steve more than I've been called Scott. But even when I am called Scott... Often, it's not that meaningful. You know, I'll be sitting in the waiting room of the doctor's office, and uh, a medical assistant will come out, and she'll have this chart, and she'll be looking down, and, you know, got the glasses down. Scott, and, you know, she doesn't know me. All she's got is a chart. That doesn't mean anything to me. And then, uh, except that they get my chart right. That, that matters. But uh, when I was growing up and playing basketball, my coach got my name right all the time, unfortunately. So when I would make a bad pass, or when I would take a shot that was ill-advised, or I would commit a turnover, Brewer, you know, and then my last name came out. And he would have that snarl. And uh, the thing is, this guy had a bad scar across his forehead where years before he'd been kicked by a donkey. And so uh, there's a lot of story there. But anyway, he has this... He has this big scar. And when he would get mad at me and call my name, Brewer, man, that scar would just like deepen like three degrees. It was just like crazy, turn all red. But even when he was calling for me to come into a game, it was not that affirming because it was like he was mad at somebody else. And so he'd say, Brewer, get in there for Jones. You know, and it was totally derisive for Jones. It didn't have anything to do affirming for me. So there's been all kinds of uses of my name that have been questionable, less than meaningful, sometimes painful. But on Friday night, June 24, 1978, I stood on an altar, and Sherry said, "Scott, I wed you now." And all that I am and all that I have, I pledge unto you. That meant a lot. And it's in those kind of moments when somebody uses your name and uses it in a powerful, edifying, life-building, loving way that there's so much to be said about your name. And I bring all that up because the Bible affirms God knows your name. And He calls your name. Can you imagine anything more precious than the God of creation, the Eternal One, who holds all of this together, the entire universe with every being, with every act of creation, that holds it all together, knows your name, calls you by name. And that's the story I want us to look at today from Luke chapter 19. Familiar story to you, no doubt, about Zacchaeus. In fact, I know some of you that grew up in church, you could join me in that little song right now. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he, right? No, forget it. Okay. For uh, those of you that want to get in on that later, we'll have a post-service Zacchaeus song time. So, chapter 19, verse 1. Read with me this great story of Jesus encountering a life that matters to Him and calling Him by name. So Jesus entered Jericho and He was passing through. And there was a man named Zacchaeus. And he was a chief tax collector and he was rich. Now you have to imagine in the early audience when they would hear or read this, Already there would be a collective Ooh, hiss, tax collector, rich, bad guy. So you've already got the setting just with that little phrase. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, large crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead. He climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him For he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus. Called him by name. I don't know about you, I would have freaked out at that moment. I would have lost my mind. Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried, came down, received him joyfully, and when they saw it, talking about all the onlooking religious leaders and pious Jews, when they saw that, they all grumbled. He is gone. And to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. Verse 10 needs to be underscored in your Bible if it's not already. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So leave your Bible open. We're going to keep looking at chapter 19 for just a few minutes. But I just want to highlight a couple of things out of that story before we move forward. Jesus comes into Jericho. He's on His way to Jerusalem where He's going to go to the cross. He's definitely missional. He's got a place He's going to go and a thing He's got to do. And He has lived His entire life as a human for that and all eternity has prepared for the cross. We'll talk more about that next week. So I don't know about you. I'd be a little preoccupied. I mean, I'm about to save the world. I'm about to do a redemptive thing for all mankind for all time. I'm going to the cross. But he passes through Jericho. He's got this great crowd and as is his nature he's going to bless people along the way. He's going to connect and embrace and make a difference in lives all along the way. So he stops in Jericho. Big crowd there. Everybody comes out to see him. His reputation has preceded him. People have heard all kinds of stories about him. Everybody wants to see him. Zacchaeus who is a wee little guy. wee little guy was he had to climb up into a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. I'm going to work that song in anyway. <laughs> and so there he is, just minding his own business, looking at Jesus, trying to be a spectator, and Jesus calls him by name. How does he know his name? How does he know anything about his life? And on top of it all, why does he want to to go to Zacchaeus' house. See, we learn all kinds of things about Jesus in this story. Jesus cares enough about you. He knows who you are. He knows what makes up your life. He knows the ins and outs of it. It all matters to Him. And He'd like to go home with you. The home of your heart. And dwell in the living room of your life. And there... Be with you. Have relationship with you. Do life with you. And so he brings all that to Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus, the text says, what? Received him joyfully. It was stunning to him that Jesus would want to have anything to do with him. Because Zacchaeus was a screw-up. Zacchaeus was a bad guy. He had ripped off a lot of people. He had lived an evil and wicked kind of life. Jesus wants to have anything to do with me? Yes, come to my house. And so he joyfully received him. And the story is truncated. It's shortened so that we don't know all the ins and outs of what happened when, Zac- uh, when Jesus went to Zacchaeus's home. But obviously, some kind of exchange of life happened in such a way that he became a follower of Christ. Because, you see, the evidence of it, his heart is so transformed, a greedy guy becomes Generous. A hoarding guy, a rip-off artist, a guy who has spent his life overtaxing people and pocketing the difference, has transformed. He's a different guy. I'm going I'm to give away half of everything I've got, and everybody I've defrauded, everybody I've ripped off, I'm going to pay them back four times. And Jesus said, okay, you have been saved because of this, the way it's transformed and changed your heart. And I just simply want to ask you that question today. Has that happened for you? You see, when, and I told you my story a couple of weeks ago, when John Caldwell stopped at my house one day, knocked on the door, asked if he could come in and talk to me about Jesus, and he began to tell me about how much I mattered to Christ and that Christ had died on the cross for me and that Christ wanted my life in His life and His life in my life. He said, what do you think about that? Is that something that you'd like to see happen in your life? And I was like, yeah. Joyfully received that. And I made that commitment and that decision that day, and a few days later was baptized, just like you saw today. Has that happened for you? You see, that stirring, I never heard an audible voice from heaven, Scott, be saved. Never heard that. But when John was telling me about the gospel and telling me about what Christ had died for me about and what it, was, it, it could all mean to me, I was so stirred inside, I knew God's here. God's stirring me. And that was the, the call of God on my heart. Maybe that's happening for you right now. And if you're stirred right now with me talking about this, that is God calling you. He's got your address. He came home right to your heart to stir you about that. Let's look a little bit more at the heart of Jesus. As we keep going through chapter 19, we're going to see that as He leaves Jericho and He makes His way to Jerusalem, He's going to have what we call the triumphal entry. So, fast forward a few days from Jericho. It's now a Sunday when He's entering Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And we've come now to call it Palm Sunday because as he was entering the city, uh, a lot of uh, the crowd got excited and they began to wave the palm leaves at him and they began to cry out, Hosanna, uh, our, our king has come. And there was all kinds of excitement. Now, there was all kinds of misunderstanding as well about who Jesus was and is and what he was planning to do. But they were throwing their cloaks in the the way. He's riding a donkey, and he's got this big parade that comes into town. Now, Rembrandt has fashioned a portrait of Jesus that has been remarked about for a long time by a number of people. Now, John Piper is one of those guys that I enjoy reading. Piper has this picture in his office, and he likes to just sit and stare at it and kind of reflect on it because he has noticed something unique about Rembrandt's rendition of Jesus. And I think it's relevant to what we're talking about in Luke 19. For example, he says, if you focus on one side of Jesus' face, you can kind of see that there is a little bit of a sparkle, there's a little bit of a a glimmer of hope about what can happen for humanity who is lost and fallen, who is condemned in sin. There's hope about that, that uh, sinners like us will believe the Gospel and repent and turn around and turn to Him. But if you look at the other side of His face, you see that it's a little more sad. It's, a, it's got some grief in it. It's got a little bit of uh, dejection there because of the realization that He has that some people will say no. And some people will not know Jesus in a saving way. And they will remain condemned in their sins, as an enemy of God. And so Piper uh, remarks how when you look at Jesus full on, you can see both of these dynamics going on in him at the same time. And he affirms uh, Rembrandt for capturing that because this is exactly what's going on when Jesus is preparing to come into the city on the triumphal entry in verses 41 through 44 in Luke 19 we we hear that as jesus was getting ready to come into the city for that triumphal entry he's sitting outside of the city weeping why is jesus weeping Victorious Jesus. Jesus who knows He's going to die a horrific death, but He's going to rise again. He's going to conquer sin. He's going to conquer death. He's going to conquer the grave. He's going to win a great victory for the Lord. Why would He be weeping? He's weeping over the hearts of men and women who don't get it, who don't embrace Him, who don't allow Him to touch and to forgive and to redeem and to transform, to save their lives. It breaks His heart. What a revelation our Scriptures give us of the living God. What a contrast it is to all of the other plethora of deities that other religious groups would want to say, this is a God. This is the God who is full of compassion. Whose heart is bent toward you, cares about you, longs for you, woos and calls you to himself. And as Jesus finishes this discourse that's recorded in 41 through 44, this is the last thing that he says about it, in a sense of of disappointment and grief. Commenting about the majority of those in Jerusalem, you did not know the time of your visitation. The saving work of God is right here in your midst. It is a divine appointment. It is a divine visitation for your benefit. And you did not know the time of your visitation. Now that's kind of a loaded phrase. It's found all over the Old Testament and the New Testament, the time of your visitation. And sometimes that phrase refers to the judgment of God. Sometimes God would visit people in such a way that He was there to judge them. And then there were other times that He would appear and visit with the purpose of redeeming and saving and blessing. And it's unquestionably that in these days of Jesus' life, His visitation, His presence there with them is for salvation, for redemption. For example, you uh, reflect back to when Zechariah was serving in the temple. This is the father of John the Baptist. And when he begins to understand what God is going to do through his son, John the Baptist, And the coming Redeemer, Jesus, He says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people. Luke one sixty eight. So even just before the birth of Jesus, it's being announced, it's being prophesied. We're about to have a special visitation, and this visitation is all about redemption. This visitation is about your salvation. Now, during the time of Jesus, He goes to a little village one day, he encounters a widow whose son had died, and he miraculously raises this son back to life and gives this son back to her mother, to his mother. And everybody's marveling at the miracle and what took place. And we're told that the people of that village, Nain, were seized with fear and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has risen among us and God has visited his people. He's visiting us right now. See, this wasn't just, oh, it's Sunday. Should I go to church? Should I not go to church? I think I'll go to church. Should I go to Meadowbrook? Should I go to another one? I think I'll go to Meadowbrook. This wasn't something that you just felt like doing. God stirred us to join together in an hour where He would visit us. And I'm going to tell you, in this day of election, if we had been visited by one of the presidential candidates or if we had been visited by any other senatorial candidate or whatever, there would have been some kind of buzz. There would have been some kind of anticipation. I'm actually going to be close to that person that I see on television all the time. Maybe I'll even get a photo op. Maybe I'll get to have something... There would have been something going on inside of you in anticipation about an earthly presence, an earthly visit. Do you get it? That the Creator of this universe, the King of kings, Lord of lords... Visiting us. Now, Jesus had some sorrow because they did not know it was a visitation of salvation. Now, we need to understand exactly what that phrase means, because on one hand, well, if they don't know, how can you hold them accountable for something they don't know? But it's a case of not knowing, but knowing. And you go, well, what is that? What do do you mean? Well, here's how Jesus addressed that in Luke 12. A few passages before where we are right now, verses 54 through 56. He said to this kind of group of people, When you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower's coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be a scorching heat, and so it happens. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearances of the earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? This visitation. You see, they knew, but they didn't know. Meaning, they knew, but they wouldn't acknowledge what they knew. They wouldn't accept what they knew. And we do that all the time. For example, uh, some of us either have loved ones or friends, or it's happened to us, where we've had that examination by the physician, and he basically has said, you know what, you've got a lifetime of overeating and smoking and not exercising and all that's got to stop. Right now, you've got to change your diet. You've got to stop smoking and you've got to begin some kind of routine of exercising your body. If you don't, you're going to die. You know it. But then you go and do nothing about it and you find yourself on a hospital bed one day with a team of people around you as you are breathing your last and about to die, and you comment or think to yourself, well, if I had known, I should have made some changes. See, you know but you don't know. You know, but you won't accept the reality of what you know. And that's what was going on in the day of Jesus. He's saying, you don't know. You won't accept the reality of this visitation. You say, well, how does that happen? Well, here's what uh, the Apostle Paul had to say about that in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. He says, because of our unrighteousness, because of our sinfulness, because of our bent toward a direction away from God, we suppress truth. That's the way our heart naturally acts to suppress truth. And so the hope of a gathering like this and you need to know people have been praying throughout the days leading up to today for this hour. People have been praying for you. There are people in this room right now that are praying for everyone else That's listening to this talk, so that truth will no longer be suppressed, but released. So what we know is what we know. So what we know is what we accept as the reality of what is. That we're sinful. We're already condemned. Jesus cares. He knows you and calls you by name. Trust me, follow me, allow me to forgive you and save you. Now this past week, those of you that have been doing the read through the Bible thing, you came across Luke 15, which just precedes a little bit about what we're reading today. And in Luke 15, we have this grand expose on the heart of God. Because, you know, somewhere back there, most of us have this notion that I know I'm busted. I know I screw up. And, and God's got to be ticked off about that, uh, you know. And so we have this idea. I mean, it's kind of like me and my coach. You know, I, I wanted to play basketball. I wanted to be on the team. I wanted to be successful in that arena. But man, I just felt like this guy was on me all the time. And so I never wanted to be close to him. I never wanted to be near him. I hoped he didn't notice a lot of stuff in my life. And a lot of people feel that way about God. We think he has a heart bent toward barking at us and condemning us. When he has a heart bent toward wooing us and saving us. And so in Luke 15, Jesus has been bringing that message to whoever would receive it. And guess who mostly was receiving it? Broken, busted people. The people that kind of had their lives together and were the respectable, robe wearing, religious leading kinds of people, they weren't getting it at all. So he just kept taking it to people that were screwed up. Kind of like Zacchaeus. And they were responding like Zacchaeus. And so there's all this grumbling going on. Why does he hang out with sinners? Why does he go hang out with those prostitutes and those tax collectors? And the blah, blah, blah. and so in response to that grumbling in Luke 15, Jesus gives you three quick snapshots of the heart of God. My group just spent the whole night this last Wednesday talking about this. The first snapshot is a shepherd that loses a sheep. He's got 100 sheep. He's still got 99 accounted for, but he loses one. And Jesus said that shepherd will go and find that one. Point in case? You matter. Hundreds, millions, billions have already entered into the sheepfold of Christ, have already been saved and redeemed, going to heaven someday when they die. But Jesus still wants you. Lost sheep. He's still looking for you. Snapshot number two. woman has ten coins. She loses one of the coins. She begins to just diligently scour every corner and crook and nanny of the house. She's got a light. She's looking everywhere for that one lost coin. Describing the kind of diligence, the kind of intensity of Jesus toward you. He's not just flippantly laid back, come. He is intensely pursuing you. He has pursued you from all kinds of angles and dimensions and touched your heart time and time and time again. Someday when we enter the next life that is to come, you'll be able to see how this life all played out and you'll see all those times. Oh, He tried to reach me there. He tried to reach me there. He touched me there. He pursued me there. And Romans 1.18, we just kept suppressing truth, suppressing truth, suppressing truth, and it just wasn't breaking through. And He kept on pursuing is what Snapshot 2 paints. And then that third picture, we come to, uh, to refer to that story as the prodigal son. The son takes his father's inheritance, blows it, goes off to a far country, uh, and, and just lives this wild, riotous life. And at the pit of it all, he comes to himself and wants to return to his father's home. And so he makes that journey home, rehearsing a speech. God, I know I don't deserve... I mean, Father, I know I don't deserve to be a son any longer. Just let me be a servant in your household. And the way the story plays out, as you know, the father is looking for the son, been looking for the son, day after day after day. And when he sees him afar off, goes running after him, meets him in the way, embraces him, restores him to full sonship, welcomes him in the house and throws a party. And now you're looking at Rembrandt's depiction of that fatherly embrace. And that's the picture I have in my office. Because that's my father embracing my life. Do you get it? Do you know that you know that you know You're a sinner that needs a Savior. Jesus is that Savior who loves you and knows you by name and calls you to Himself. Do you know that you know that you have given your life to Him and surrendered to Him? And you have now been adopted and you are a son or a daughter. Of the living God. Do you know that you know that you know? I'm going to ask you to respond to what we've been talking about. When Jesus called to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus responded, Will you? Will you joyfully surrender to His Lordship? I'm going to give my life to you. And you know that when that happens, there's a transformation that's going to take place. You cannot and will not be the same person. This isn't like putting Jesus in your hip pocket and making sure that you've got some religious stuff covered. This is a surrender so that He changes your life. Will you? And will you publicly identify? Some of you have made that commitment. Will you also go public about that as we've done today? with baptism, or go public about that in a number of other ways, such as sharing what Jesus is doing in your life with others. Telling that good news, that gospel, like John Caldwell did with me. Here's what's going to happen. I want to pray for you about these things. And then after I have prayed for you, we're going to have just a few moments where you can pray silently where you are. We'll also have some praying people on the back wall. And if you'd like to go back there and, and have them pray for you about something, you'll have a moment to do that quietly and discreetly. But here's the thing, friends. Some of you have, from time to time, indicated on the connection card I want to have a relationship with Jesus. Do something about that. That call is here again today. Do something about that. Why don't you go back to one of those praying people and say, I I want to have Jesus in my life. I want to surrender to Him. Let them pray for you about that. Okay? Let me pray for you. Then we'll have this little season of quiet time before we continue. God, when we look at these snapshots of You in Luke's Gospel and we see how big your heart is toward us, how much you love us, how much you know us, how, how you call us, we are just amazed. Because when we really come to grips with who we are, we wouldn't call ourselves, much less think the Holy God of eternity would call us. And so with humility, and with a sense of, of awe, we thank You for being the kind of God You are. Now, I pray for my friends that are considering or contemplating stuff that we've just talked about. Lord, by Your Spirit that's present with us, would You help to make sense the things we've talked about, the things of the Gospel, the things of salvation? Would You stir... And bring that call one more time. Would You help us to respond? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Just continue to pray for a moment.